How can we understand something as complicated as a war, an economic crisis? Who do we ask? Politics is too important to leave to experts. We're all affected by it, and we can't ignore it. You know more than you think, and you can learn what you don't know. I'm Justin Podor, and this is The Ossington Circle, a podcast to help you understand the world, and maybe even change it. Welcome to the Ossington Circle. Uh, I'm here, very excited to be here with authors Stan Cox and Paul Cox, the authors of How the World Breaks, Life in Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia. It's a 2016 book, um, The New Press, which is a great publisher. Uh, Stan Cox is research coordinator at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, where he lives. His books include Losing Our Cool and Any Way You Slice It. So Losing Our Cool is about living without air conditioning. Any Way You Slice It is about rationing. And if I do, um, if we do have time, I do hope to talk to Stan about uh, rationing a little bit too. Paul Cox is an anthropologist and writer based in Copenhagen, Denmark. His work covers development and disaster around the world with publications strewn all the way from the journal Disasters to the New Inquiry and Hyperallergenic. So thank you guys both for being with me. I know this is a kind of a family production because Preeti Cox um, also did the diagrams for this book. So this book has a lot of interesting maps and diagrams in it that were also handmade by Preeti Cox. So it's like a real family production. Anyway, thank you guys both for being with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Okay, so um, How the World Breaks, it's about different kinds of disaster zones, and, and there's an immense wealth of information. That's a bit of a cliche to say there's a wealth of information, but you guys have traveled to a lot of different places here. There's the Philippines, Australia, Siberia, New York, Indonesia, uh, Italy, Florida, um, Uganda, the West Indies, Greensburg, Kansas, and Joplin, Missouri, and Uttarakhand in India. So you're all over the place, and there's different kinds of disasters. You have fires, floods, uh, monsoons, tsunamis. So there, there's a kind of a through line that I found here, which is a critique of this concept of resilience. And so that's where I wanted to start. How do you understand resilience to disasters in this book and what does it mean for um, like what does this concept mean and how is it being used in disasters around the world? It's a kind of model or terminology that depending on what people are involved in either they might just hear every once in a while or they might be completely surrounded by because if you're anywhere close to the disaster world or climate adaptation um, anything like that then it's extremely dominant it's, you kind of don't realize until you start really getting into you know but if you read you know you're not going to read any kind of speech from the UN about climate and disaster or anything from that whole world without hearing this uh, hearing about resilience so it's very much the kind of doctrine of at least the last 20 years it's the doctrine goes back further so it's the doctrine of the it's become the doctrine of the aid industry in a way right like I am um, 
I studied ecology. I actually studied forestry. My degrees are in forestry, and I studied uh, uh, forest fires. My a lot of my research okay. has been so on forest fires. So you've been hearing about it for longer than most people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you've got this, uh, you know, Crawford Stanley Halling or Buzz Halling, which is what we call him, Buzz Halling, and uh, resilience and stability of ecological systems. So resilience is the idea of being able to come back after a fire or like absorb an invasive species without the whole ecosystem collapsing but then this is this idea is kind of ported over to social systems especially in the aid industry understand social systems to be more measured in terms of their resilience to natural disasters so is that the kind of thing that you're looking at yes and um that and that's a very clear process you can see in the literature and i think that buzz Holling himself promoted that idea um, through the, his kind of larger, more holistic models of social ecological systems. Uh, and, and his idea was kind of to pull humanity into the, to, to think of ourselves as, as, and our systems as part of uh, ecosystems, which I think was useful within ecology, but then it kind of very quickly, the, the, uh, the core kind of idea of resilience was very quickly picked up well outside of that realm and uh, I think um, and the, the argument that we make in the book is that it's uh, was done so not necessarily because it uh, explains things really well but, but because it's an extremely useful concept uh, for kind of attempts to manage systems or you know to provide aid or development and yeah because of oh, you, you kind of jump simplifications in. you want to jump in Stan uh, yeah and in, in, in that process that it, it got very muddled uh, sometimes resilience is talked about as if it's a property uh, inherent property of societies or social systems other times it's uh, an aspiration we have to try to be uh, more resilient and it it uh, is um, as we said in the book at some point it looks like pretty much everything is uh, resilience and that resilience can mean just about anything. <laughs> and there's this fantastic quote on page 11 right in your introduction from these other authors. I guess there are other critics of the idea of resilience, Brad Evans and Julian Reed. They see you 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 kind of summarize their book where you say they see the current demotion of human beings to the status of resilient subjects as part of the dark even nihilistic value system of a future that's abandoned all pretense of higher goals. That's fascinating. So the idea is, don't hope for anything better, just try to be more resilient to the bad things that are coming. There have been as many critiques of resilience written, I think, as there have been papers about uh, <laughs> the concept, but, uh, and Evans and Reed are, are two of the best known and definitely most kind of forceful uh, critics and have actually claimed that they they're not even going to write about it anymore because they're so sick of it. <laughs> they yeah. don't think there's any any redeeming, any chance of redeeming it. Yeah, I mean, I I think that they make very good make a lot of very good points, and uh, I think it's worthwhile to look at it in relation to the model or the concept that it's largely replaced within the last ten or twenty years, which was the vulnerability model. Uh, mm which has a started around you know, in the 70s and, and was very prominent in the 80s and 90s. And uh, in a large part, the popularity of resilience has been as, as an alternative to talking about vulnerability. And it's a very kind of, it's the kind of reversal of perspective that's very popular 
Yeah, yeah, like you're it's you're sort plucky. Of almost like a kind of Silicon Valley move to say, yeah. okay, we're not going to talk about people's vulnerabilities. We're going to talk about resilience right. and right. possibilities and, and optimistic things. Dan, you well, you you said something just a minute ago where you said it's starting to look as if resilience can be anything and anything can be resilient, and that that's a line in your book. And I just wanted to read a little bit more of that because uh, it's page 320, 321. Resilience is not a normative concept. It includes no built-in performance measures, no innate morality. To deploy it is to deploy a set of definitions, which what ecologists call defining the resilience of what to what. So, and you go on a little bit, a city can be resilient to an earthquake, but a dictatorship can also be resilient to dissent. Diseases, invasive weeds, and fire ants are resilient to extermination. Patriarchy and apartheid are resilient to justice. Uh, the world's most destructive corporations spend millions of dollars planning their resilience to everything. And I just thought that's, that's fantastic. So it, it kind of shows how re- just because you're resilient, that doesn't mean that's anything that a, you know, a decent person would value. But the, the idea of uh, vulnerability emphasized the difference between people who had access to plenty of material resources and, and those that don't. Resilience uh, kind of uh, tries to claim that we're, we're all in the, the same situation. It's just that those of us who do have or live in rich societies and have a lot of access to resources, that makes us resilient. So New York City can build back after Sandy, etc. Whereas places where there aren't a lot of resources, that that's where people are really super resilient because they have to be, and and the more vulnerable people are, the more resilient they have to be. And and but and then there's this kind of condescending idea that you 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 really are the most resilient uh, people. Right. So like you you might not. You might be starving or homeless or whatever, but you sure are resilient. It's like a compensation. Or uh, yep. like Mother Teresa said, the the suffering of the poor is a beautiful thing to behold or something, right? Yeah. Um, but let's get into the details because I, 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 there's there's a resilience model, it seems, right? Like it's almost some kind of a model. You guys were saying it's, it's not very specific and it's a little bit value-free and you can map whatever you want onto it, but there's this idea that there's some measurable type of resilience that an aid worker or a researcher can go into a community and take these, do a survey or go and do some kind of study and then create some indicators of resilience um, and then be able to maybe predict how how a community will bounce back. But what you guys then did was you went to and, and actually did a much more qualitative narrative historical type of research where you went and you you kind of unearthed these stories of how people actually are coping and i wonder how you whether you want to talk specifically and whether any any of these cases the difference between that resilience model and the realities that you found looking at kind of reports from from aid projects or development projects like that that are uh, trying to make communities more resilient. There's a very common outcome uh, or finding, which is that people in uh, you know poor and vulnerable uh, environments are uh, they they don't have the material resources to make themselves resilient, but they do have this kind of these kind of social mechanisms where you know there's just very tight knit community. So if there's 
uh, typhoon and a lot of trees are felled, then they can rely on their neighbors to come out and help them clear out. You know, they, they may not be able to bring a truck in, but they can, you know, there are these kind of social coping mechanisms and uh, kind of mutual aid uh, types of responses that's kind of is what is considered so resilient about them and that's the special power they have is this sort of very you know nice sounding uh community spirit um and so what uh, i mean the difference between that sort of funding and what we saw is just more i think we kind of had our own uh focus on how much that sucks i mean to have to do that to, yeah. to, we were we were looking at all of that work and that community spirit as something that it's a way that it's never portrayed in in uh, most contexts which is as labor because it kind of has an almost uh, you know it's 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 very kind of uh, you know it's it's almost a bit too sacred to look at as just people doing work because it's neighbors helping neighbors and it's tightening the bonds of society and it's kind of producing these memorable experiences that will change people for the rest of their lives but at the same time if we're talking about a world in which these disasters are not others are to blame for these disasters which is usually the case but increasingly the case uh, with climate related disasters then I think we do have to look at that all of that work of rebuilding and recovering and being resilient, the work that, that goes into it, not as, you know, this amazing capacity, but also as work. Well, it's fascinating, too, because I, a couple of episodes ago, I was talking to uh, an author, Tim Schwartz, who works with the aid industry in, in Haiti, and he, he wrote a book about post-earthquake Haiti. And as you were talking about it as work, it, it made me realize, like, these aid workers went to Haiti after the after the earthquake and they you know he talks about how they brought all this incredible fancy equipment and I remember Stan I wrote to you like when I was in last in Haiti because I went to talk to UN workers there and they were all in little air-conditioned trailers and I thought oh air, look at this like the first thing they do is set up air conditioning for themselves because you had that book about air conditioning but um you know, so they come and they do their air-conditioned trailer. They hang out in their air-conditioned trailers and they go and they pull people out of the rubble, right? And they and they pulled, you know, whatever, a couple hundred people out of the rubble, uh, according to Schwartz's calculations, and they got paid for it. So that was their work. But if Haitians go and pull their neighbors out of the rubble, that's not work. So it's it's very interesting. And they and the foreign aid workers get paid very lucratively. They get paid because it's so hazardous. They get paid extra because they have to travel and be away from their families. But anybody who's who has to live in these places 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, doesn't get paid just for being in this very difficult place to live. Because the the discussion of resilience can get kind of abstract um that's why we uh, decided to uh, go to a bunch of places and, and, and see how it's working and and, and we went you know, you know it was anywhere from uh two months to about eight years after the the disaster and then in one case miami before the disaster we don't know when it's going to happen hmm. um but uh, and we had 
it was just pouring rain the entire time. It was a huge uh, storm system that um, was actually caused even more flooding in, in Mindanao and killed more people and was uh, teleconnected to the, um, some vicious winter storms that were uh, hitting uh, China and North America. I should also mention that I was just looking at the news and uh, Tacloban at this moment is still having power restored after a magnitude 6.5 earthquake uh, earlier this month that cut off uh, power supply to the entire island. So Mindanao, where we're talking about earthquakes as well as tropical storms and tsunamis uh, making it really difficult to cope. I wanted to move back, uh, Stan, to something you said about Miami. You mentioned uh, we don't know when you got there before the disaster. Uh, your chapter on Miami is called Atlantis of the Americas. And uh, most of the, I'm looking at page 183, for example, the Rolling Stone headline waved goodbye Miami while the Guardian announced Miami, the great world city's drowning. So can you just talk a bit about what's going to happen to Miami? Uh, yeah, everybody uh, has uh, probably heard in the past few years about the uh, so-called uh, sunny day flooding that uh, happens on the Miami Beach, which is an island. And that um, that is sort of the uh, initial sign of uh, big trouble ahead generally for, for Miami. And, and, and that's a case of with sea level rise and at high tides of water from the Atlantic coming up through the porous limestone under Miami Beach and um, flooding the the streets. And so they've built seawalls uh, to uh, try to keep the water from coming in from the shore, but it's coming up from underneath. So the seawalls create a kind of a bathtub. And uh, so they're having, they've invested in huge pumps to pump the water back out uh, as it as it comes in. And they're raising streets a couple of feet and, and do, doing all of this stuff. But it's um, it's just going to get worse with the uh, rapidity of sea level rise. But now the mainland is also under threat. And the, and the basic problem is that Miami is um, surrounded by three on three sides by water. They've got the Everglades to the west and and water flows continuously from the Everglades under through this limestone uh, uh, foundation that Miami sits on. So they've got water underneath, and then they've got the Atlantic rising on the west, and the sea level rises backing up uh, the whole system. And it's, um, it's uh, getting worse every year. Uh, we went down to... Uh, you know, see uh, how they're dealing with this. The concreteness that you discuss these floods with is part of what I really liked about the book. You talked about Kampala in Uganda, you talked about Mumbai in the book, and the way that these different events play out in different societies based on their wealth and and how resilience correlates with wealth. What I wanted, I wanted to ask in that context, how the case of Sandy in the in New York, the wealthiest city in the wealthiest society in human history. So how does that? How did that play out? 
Why don't we talk a bit about the case of Hurricane Sandy? Yeah, that was kind of, uh, I guess, a starting point for working on the whole book. Um, it was uh, the the new press who we published it with is uh, on the island of Manhattan, and then they were kind of sitting in the dark, uh, having an editorial meeting after Sandy when the power was still off, and kind of started talking about this. And I was in, uh, I. Had was in the process of moving out of the city at the time and I was just across the river in New Jersey. So it kind of, that was the original case that we had. So we knew we would have to, to write about it. And um, and it is a very uh, illustrative one, I think, of how disaster can look like a lot of different things from a lot of different perspectives. Uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of money was made out of it and will continue to be made out of it. Uh, and a, a big focus of what we were writing about is there was a very kind of there was a big attempt to not just kind of uh, help people out and rebuild, but really make this a, a showcase for the resilience approach. And there was a big federal um, kind of design challenge to come up with, you know, to, to take different approaches and come up with uh, solutions for it. Uh, kind of a more resilient New York. And um, the the winning design for Manhattan was this kind of belt around the bottom of the island that would not just be a seawall, but would kind of have all of these other little features, uh, be kind of kind of nice park areas and, and work in really interesting ways. And it was, you know, it was the talk of the design world for a while. And uh, according to the original plans, they should have broken ground to start on it last month, but I haven't heard anything about them having done that. But it's kind of, well, obviously from the original proposal, which was very kind of, uh, you know, looked really good in the renderings and, and had a lot of great ideas in it, but it's really not clear how much of that will actually be done. But uh, the part that they're actually going to build, uh, supposedly they're about to start building, will protect the east side of Manhattan from 25th Street down to uh, close to the to Montgomery which is close to the financial district and that should if it if it works at all it should certainly protect um, a lot of streets from flooding that flooded during uh, during Sandy and uh, a large part of that is the lower east side which saw some of the really some really bad effects and uh, is certainly one of the poorer areas that was affected but uh, there was actually, you know, there was quite a, the, the community, certain community groups were very engaged in the process, but were also very kind of wary of what this was going to mean for the neighborhood because, uh, you know, it's New York and uh, when neighborhoods become safer and more attractive, a lot can change. And we, we contrasted that effort in the book with what we considered to be a much more resilient uh, approach in, in Staten Island, where people who had been totally uh, inundated living along the coast of Staten Island, those uh, there were a couple of neighborhoods, um, small towns that um, campaigned for a buyout and said, it's, it's ridiculous, nobody ought to be uh, living in a place like this. And we're, uh, we don't want to armor the coast and stay here. We, we just want to go uh, live where uh, where this isn't going to happen again. And they um, managed to um, get the state to uh, do that. Um, but then, the, the, as I understand, the state cut, de- cut that program out pretty quickly after that. And so it was only these uh, few communities who uh, managed to 
uh, get out. One of the effects the book had on me was to make me think about pers- hearing these personal stories of how people lived through disasters and taking their families and walking miles from one refugee camp to another. It made me wonder about what it would be like to be in a disaster myself. I started I started the book thinking about it, imagining it as an aid worker would or a scholar would, and then over over the time over time the more i read the more stories i read of people affected the more i started to read it and think about myself uh as a potential victim of disaster and what i would do and what uh i wondered if studying disasters had that effect on you guys had that effect on either one of you guys or both neither of us has really had a serious disaster experience in our lives that you know that required uh, really uh, a lot of recovery Um, just you know the kind of normal uh, events but um, I think it certainly um, I mean I think especially when I was talking to people in New York uh, because I had actually experienced the same storm, uh, but in a very, di- a very distant and different way from how they did, uh, that certainly made me think about that gap. And um, you know, I, I had been out in the suburbs and had just been kind of stuck in a house for uh, a couple of days, which did actually have a uh, generator, so I wasn't even without power for much of the time. Um, and my main problem was just not being able to get back into the city. Uh, and then I did get back in and uh, was kind of helping out with uh, some of the efforts that were going on in the city once I was there. Um, but certainly didn't experience it in the way that so many people did. And I think that that was the feeling a lot of the time that there's there are certain ways in which you can feel like, uh, you know, if, if you're not... Uh, at the, you don't you're at a very different level of essential vulnerability that you're much less likely to find yourself in this situation. But then, if you look at a longer time scale and kind of the uh, possible scenarios of uh, extreme climate change, um, then in some ways you can say that everybody's in the same boat. But I think it's always a bit dangerous to say that we are all in the same boat and all. Uh, are going to be facing the same things because in 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 reality it's there are already people experiencing climate change in a way that uh, that other people do not and possibly will not. One of the powerful points that you make in the book is that the rich are actually the masters of resilience. So this fluid concept of resilience is one thing, but in fact, it's those who have the most resources that are the most resilient. So the whole idea of the poor being resilient is is fundamentally inaccurate. I wonder if you wanted to reflect about that at all. We, we had one um, uh, section of a, a chapter on the uh, silver linings of um, disasters. And one of the three types of silver linings was um, uh, this idea 
that we hear after every uh, disaster that, uh, well, it's going to stimulate the economy. And, and it, we, we uh, say New York after Sandy or where, wherever it is, it's uh, actually going to uh, end up once we get through the recovery <clears throat> it'll actually be better off. And so we examined that uh, economic uh, question, and, and, and there are plenty of economic studies showing uh, that um, that over the long term it doesn't, uh, there, there isn't any economic benefit to uh, disasters, and that usually the, the society doesn't catch up to where it would have been otherwise. But there's uh, still a persistent idea that we have we will give up on trying to prevent climatic catastrophe and that uh, any um, uh, affluent society um, will be able to um, d- d- sort of um, uh, in, uh, envelop the cost of disasters as just the cost of doing business and that economic growth will uh will take care of it um that doesn't um uh, apply of course to uh poor societies and so you know they're uh, that's where you know they have to rely on their um in uh supposedly inherent resist re- <clears throat> resilience um but uh it having uh uh, resources and power, and political and economic power, um, does shield a, a society much more from uh, from catastrophe. And uh, it's kind of an illusion, but it makes it uh, look resilient. In theoretical terms, if we don't believe in resilience as a framework and we don't believe in vulnerability as a framework, how would you, how should we think about disaster? How should we think about these kinds of events that you describe in the book and the economics and the politics behind them? What, what is a framework that you would advocate uh, for trying to understand these things? No, I mean, there have been part of the reason that, that there's such a push to come up with a better alternative is uh, there have been some very valid critiques um, of the whole vulnerability discourse because it's quite disempowering and it kind of denies a lot of agency uh, is is the main problem with it. Whereas resilience is all about uh, empowering people to find their own ways of dealing with the world. Um, But I think that there's um, another alternative way of looking at that which is through uh through things like climate justice and um more kind of you know bringing the politics back into it because ultimately uh resilience is a classically neoliberal kind of concept in that it's just a very kind of it's a way of getting around having to deal with things as political phenomena but uh, disasters are extremely political every time in every case that we looked at. And uh, so I think that, um, you know, uh, that there are other ways out of saying, well, if, if we're only talking about people's vulnerability, we're not really giving them a, uh, their own way out of it. If we 
say, okay, well, the way that people empower themselves is is through political action and, and not through some kind of uh, clever reframing of uh, their vulnerability. Uh, right. And um, as, as for um, strategies like um, rationing, <clears throat> what rationing would be in, in affluent societies would be more of um, would be something that would co- have to come after we take the um, the basic steps, and those uh, are going to all be um, uh, very. They're they're going to require huge changes in way of life in uh, in the global north. Um, uh, there are plenty of studies um, and more coming every day showing that there's got to be an immediate, very steep decrease in uh, carbon in greenhouse emissions. Um, and, and most of that is going to have to come in the countries that are, are producing uh, the most um, <clears throat> emissions. And um, that's going to mean um planning of where resources go. It's going to mean in enforcing very steep cuts in consumption of uh, fossil fuels, um, using the uh, energy um, from that dwindling quantity of fossil fuels plus whatever is being built up in is in renewable energy, um, using that in a in a planned way and not um, just uh, simply uh, producing what's most profitable. And at the same time we're doing that, we're also going to have to be uh, helping to fund a reduction in vulnerability in, uh, in countries that don't have the, uh, the resources to do it themselves. Now th- this all, um, so it's hard to imagine um, a country like the United States doing that today, but th- that's simply a statement of what needs to be done. And if that course is followed, then eventually it's going to mean um, rationing of, uh, of basic goods because um, there won't be it, we're, we're not going to have the uh, cornucopia of uh, of resources. Uh, it's you know, there's been a lot of um, comparison of this kind of scenario I just described. A lot of comparison with the uh, World War II era when um, we had to wall off a large part of our uh, resources and production for the war effort and that left a much smaller pie to slice up for everybody else. And, um, and rationing, um, what was the, the result there. And while it was not, um, it, it wasn't necessarily a pleasant experience. It was, uh, much, uh, superior to, uh, the, uh, kind of alternative dog eat dog alternatives that, would have um, been uh, much more disastrous. And it did foster a greater uh, sense of uh, everybody uh, being in the same boat and uh, nobody, um, uh, it it 
reduced the um, the vast gulf in consumption that, uh, that, that was not that big then, but and it's huge now. Uh, but it um, made it, it made for a, a, a more um, a cooperative spirit, I guess you'd say. Are you concerned that in emphasizing climate change at the expense of but potentially at the expense of other environmental problems, we're neglecting several things that could also spell the end of civilization, like nuclear catastrophe or mass species extinction or ocean destruction or soil loss. Uh, Is there a mistaken emphasis on climate change in that sense, or a too narrow emphasis happening? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm I'm afraid that... Uh, that we're doing just that, that in the uh, very uh, necessary alarm over climate change that we are ignoring um, the, uh, what uh, studies have called the nine planetary boundaries that we can't cross, and um, uh, which one of them being climate, um, and some of the others you mentioned, um, and we have already crossed something like four of them, and we're we're heading toward uh, disaster in all of those areas. Yes, I, th- I think we'll only you know we'll only find out uh, in the long run. But uh, I mean, it's it seems clear that the uh, consequences of climate change are definitely the uh, thing that we should be worrying most about right now. Um, and uh, but I think an important uh, mess, uh, an important lesson that we learned was that it's you know this being the the Anthropocene is kind of redefining what disasters are and has certainly redefined the idea of natural disasters to the point where that term has been banished from from almost all uh, uh, at least academic discourse on disaster um but that's not just because of climate change that we're learning more all the time about uh, and coming to recognize more all the time about all types of disasters and um how and the, the human role in them and uh, that's very clear with uh, and very visible with climate change uh, if not if you can't always draw direct lines but uh, as a couple of the stories that we go into show um we're coming to that realization, in, uh, even with completely uh, non-climate connected uh, disasters such as uh, earthquakes, and uh, and that's something that has been understood. That that was kind of the spark that that started the vulnerability discourse that kind of came from geography and and anthropology. That uh, how these how every disaster has a long history and uh, in which vulnerability is constructed. So even if the hazard itself is even if people didn't cause the earthquake, the effects of it are entirely um, determined by us. Uh, and we're learning more and more about uh, how even uh, the hazards that that cause the disaster can be human induced, including with earthquakes. Yeah, when uh, when we decided to write the book, the very first disaster that I said we've got, got to um, approach is. 
the uh, mud volcano in East Java in Indonesia, which uh, began in 2006, is still erupting. Has uh, it uh, made 45,000 uh, people homeless, destroyed an entire community, about six square mile area, and uh, was triggered by a natural gas drilling accident. Um, which caused um, boiling water to to erupt from uh, deep in the earth, you know, bringing com- coming up through a layer of clay, and it's continuing to uh, erupt mud. And it's a bizarre, wild story. But um, th- the tragic consequence is that by uh, uh, claiming the the company that uh, owned the gas well by uh, claiming that this was clearly a natural disaster, that they couldn't have been something that a little gas drilling accident could cause. They, um, uh, for many years, avoided uh, responsibility and and still have avoided a lot of uh, um, responsibility for uh, helping the disaster victims and re- relocation and so forth. And the uh, the government for a long time was, um, the previous government was very friendly with that company. And so they, um, they went along with that. But finally, uh, when uh, Joko Widodo, the current president, uh, uh, took office, uh, he's um, uh, managed to do more about it. But uh, in... In other disasters as well, the it things often go better when the blame is very clear. And the, these days, there's almost no disaster that um, that is totally uh, uh, natural, and that uh, there's nobody to blame. The uh, but in in cases where there is. Um, is is doubt as with the mud volcano it really complicates things well thank you guys so much this was a really really fascinating book a really really interesting uh, interview and discussion i can't believe how wide-ranging the discussion was geographically and and scientifically as well as politically so i thank you guys for writing a fascinating book how the world breaks and uh, thank you for joining me. I, if you have any final words, uh, anything else you wanted to add, um, now's the time. Um, I think um, I just wanted to kind of uh, go a bit beyond the end of the book because it was published uh, just about exactly a year ago uh, in July 2016. And a few things have happened since then in the world. And uh, uh, <laughs> Disasters, among other things, but <laughs> political um, disasters. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think it's. Um, I hope it was interesting uh, for you, Justin, to read it now and reflect on that a bit, because we certainly. Um, you could say that it uh, parts of it may have uh, become fairly uh, part of our argument may have become fairly obsolete because we were kind of what we were critiquing the the kind of aid world that we were. Uh-huh critiquing as you saw in Haiti that you know the Haiti was kind of a perfect example where 
the Clintons were very much uh, figureheads, and it was it was kind of the you could call it the globalist approach to the world coming together to try to help, and they did a terrible job. But um, but in some ways, that's not really what we're worried about anymore. Um, and in you know some things, everything hasn't changed, but uh, but some things have changed, and uh, so I think it's important to think about to continue to see how concepts like resilience mutate and since we did talk about the 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 wealthy as being kind of masters of resilience and the idea that well disaster can just be kind of an engine of creative destruction and will will the economy will figure out how to make the most of it uh, is very much the idea that the people who are, are currently uh, running things or trying to run things in the united states uh are are very uh fond of and uh, so i think it will be interesting to see well i don't know if interesting is the right word but but i think we'll see very clearly how the that sort of discourse is tools of the already powerful and already successful um and all that much easier to employ for people who aren't even bound by having to pretend like they care about uh about the rest of the world. So I would keep a very careful eye on any uh, anything out of the current administration that's kind of taking that line. We, we didn't realize that um, our um, critique of neoliberalism would have such a, a quick effect. And, and it would, as soon as our book came out, it looked like uh, neoliberalism was uh, under attack from whatever you call Trumpism. But it, we're and a lot of the basic questions are going to remain the same, and it's uh, we're going to have to be resilient. I think. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Stan Cox, Paul Cox, thank you very much. Authors of How the World Breaks: Life in Catastrophes, Path from the Caribbean to Siberia. Thank you again, guys, for joining me. <laughs>